welcome to episode 122 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. For you, there's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. What is going on? I don't know. I heard there's some football game today. I think it was is like there? the really, was it like the really great bowl or like the sort of awesome bowl? Something like that. Like Something the amazing like I think it was like the, game. it's okay bowl. <laughs> it's all right. It's all right bowl. Here's the irony about this because neither you or I are probably really huge NFL fans, but if at any time we had reason to be fans, it would be for this particular game because I'm from New England. You are living in New England. Yeah. And allegedly, the New England Patriots are playing in this game. Yeah. So today, Ashley was like, you know, I bet if the Patriots win, there's going to be like riots in the street in Boston because people are going to be so happy. And I was like, <laughs> eh. I mean, the, the Patriots have won the Super Bowl five times. So it's kind of old hat for some people. Yeah, exactly. This is it's why like, the Patriots eh, are hated. Eh. I did see an interesting infographic the other day that um, the quarterback for the Patriots has been in the Super Bowl more often than every other team in the NFL. That's fantastic. I think this is his ninth trip to the Super Bowl. It's really funny because if you listen to us right now, it sounds like we actually know what we're talking about, but I'm just, I just find <laughs> random facts on the internet. And this was one that I saw the other day. So let it be noted that our dedication is so great that instead of watching football with the rest of America, here we are conversing about reform theology. Also, I think our audience probably has a greater than likely, uh, greater than average likelihood of not watching the Super Bowl for religious reasons. Well, that variable could be as well. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of uh, anger about the Super Bowl in Reformed communities because it's like, why don't they just play on Saturday so then we don't have to make a decision between breaking the Sabbath or watching the the Super Bowl? And it seems more logical anyway to just do it on a Saturday, doesn't it? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, if you listen to R. Scott Clark, the shift of uh, the Super Bowl away from Saturdays to Sundays was like the beginning of the downfall of America, of American religion. And I think there's actually probably something to it, but um, probably not as much to it as he makes it sound, because he makes it sound like it's really like this was the end of the world as we know it. In some ways, I would respect the Super Bowl more if it was some nefarious plot to undermine the Lord's Day. <laughs> yeah, that, I'm sure that's what it is. <laughs> so, so that aside, we got some affirmations and denials that we're going to bust do. out, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save our most epic affirmation ever until the end. So why don't we start out with your denial? <laughs> that really puts all my stuff in the right place. Thanks. We'll work, we'll work our way up. All right, so here's where I'm going with this this week. I, I'm going to deny like strange dreams, and if you know, especially if you're not feeling well, you're you're ill, you kind of have some weird dreams. Yeah. So I've been a little bit under the weather recently, and I, I need your dream interpretation help with this. So okay. two nights ago, I had this dream where I'm giving a talk at a revival, and it's like I think almost like a huge barn. There's lots of like natural wood exposed. I don't know. This is all the details in my dream. Like there's all these rafters. It's it's beautiful. But stadium seating, there's a ton of people, and I'm supposed to speak on Daniel 4. Okay. So there's some other people with me on this like platform. I'm at like a podium or a rostrum of some kind. And I have invite everybody to stand for the reading of God's word, which is Daniel chapter 4. 
and I look to the Bible that they've given me, and there's no book of Daniel in it. Everything oh, else man. is there, but there's no book of Daniel. So I turned to I, it's just kind of anonymous persons. It's not somebody identifying the dream. And I was like, there is no book of Daniel in this Bible. And they're like, yeah, it's custom Bible. And I was like, yeah, but there's Daniel four. Like, meanwhile, everybody stood. And I'm kind of like, if you've ever done anything in like the order of worship, you're trying to be like super discreet when something crazy happens. And I just said, yeah, I need Daniel because Daniel four, right? And they're like, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, this Bible doesn't have it. And they're like, yeah, custom Zondervan. <laughs> and I was like, ah, uh, okay. So meanwhile, everybody stood. So I do the only thing that I can think of like in my dream. And I'm like really panicking. So I just start to pray and I'm doing one of these prayers where I'm like only half paying attention because I'm like trying to motion to them that I need something. And they just keep handing me responsive reading from the Psalms. I don't know why. They're like, <laughs> use this instead. And I'm like, yeah, but Daniel 4. And I'm, I'm praying and it's like getting out of hand. I literally had to wake myself up. That's how freaked out I was about this, this dream. So that was my, my nightmare. You've got any read on what any of that means? Because ironically, Daniel 4 is like the second dream of Nebuchadnezzar. So I looked it up afterwards and I was like, I don't know what this is trying to tell me. Well, I'm going to go ahead and say it probably doesn't mean anything because we're cessationists. <laughs> but fair enough. Uh, the seven cows are seven years and uh, the two dreams are what? Oh, wait, that's a different set of dreams. Yeah, this is the dream know. with the tree. And yeah. Yeah. I think it means you're supposed to memorize more scripture. So Daniel 4 is your next assignment. Oh, that's pretty good, actually. It, go. it was one of those like super vivid dreams where I remember like I'm actually in the dream, like processing thoughts, thinking about what's my next line of attack here? What do I do to figure out how to speak? But it was just traumatizing. I, I really woke myself up because I, I was so freaked out. And then I woke up and I was like, what? This is the most, un like, I'm not, why? I would never be speaking in front of a revival. Why would anybody invite me to speak to a revival? Why is Daniel 4 the text for that? So, And why wasn't Daniel in the Bible? Why wasn't, yeah, I guess, ironically, and why did Zondervan print that Bible? I don't, they were very specific about the publisher. So, yeah, I don't know. Is there, I'm trying to think if there was any like, disputes during the Reformation that involved Daniel, that there might have been a like an edition of the Bible, but I don't think there was. Yeah, I don't know. I don't so know. yeah, before I just get even more out of hand, what are you denying? So um, I'm denying accidentally shaving. So you can see, and you almost just spit out your water, which was the intended effect. Uh, you can see that I'm clean shaving right now. Usually I have a moderate beard. It's not super long. I don't, it's not super thick, but it's a moderate beard. And um, I'm shaving in the shower, right? I've got like an electric trimmer that I use that's waterproof, which is like the best investment I've ever made. And um, I used it to trim my hair the other day. So I had it really short because I, I wasn't shaving my head for a week because I had scratched my head on the dog cage. So I just wanted to keep it short. Ouch. And um, so I, I go to shave and it was one of those things where like, you know, you're like, you're in the shower, you're in a rush, you're not thinking straight. And so I turn it on and I go... Vroom. And I, it was like one of those things, and I've got like a fogless mirror in the in the shower too. It's one of those things where you look at it and you're like, oh, no, no. And it was like way too much for me to do anything about it. And I was like, maybe it's, maybe it's okay. And no. So I had to shave my whole face and I look like I'm about seven and a half years old. So, and yeah, of course, then that. it was like negative 10 degrees that day. So I walked outside and I was like, oh. 
Oh, that, that is the word. We should note too that you're full. We're talking about like fully shaved here, like clean shaven head, clean shaven face. Yeah. Yeah. It was at the point where like, it was like you shaved up and it was gone. And I was like, oh, and I was like, uh, maybe, but it was so short that it just looked splotchy and like, it looked really bad. So I had to like scramble and shave the whole, the whole thing. I mean, it's very crisp and clean looking. I mean, you're looking like Joseph coming out of prison style. (laughs) Yeah. He had to he had to like clean himself up and shave. Yeah, I thought maybe you just were going to Egypt, but you no. yeah, you look great. Thanks, I appreciate that. <laughs> it just got super awkward. <laughs> this is weird. This is weird now. Let's let's do some affirmations. Then. Pull up. Yeah. So this yeah, we'll just segue right away from that. So <laughs> the, I wanted to affirm a super sweet little text that's just come out from the banner, or it's it's been out for a little while, but I don't think it's been in print before, at least not from them. And that is all things made new, which is a collection of sermons from John Flavel for the Christian life. It's absolutely brilliant. I mean, John Flavel is Puritan rock star PR. And this is certainly worth the, the pickup. There's a, there's a lot of good stuff here. This has changed my thinking in, in a couple of different ways. So it's certainly had an impact and I highly commend it. Man, you love, you, you love some John Flavel. I do love some John Flavel. His, his stuff on guarding your heart or on like protecting uh, the work of Christ within your life is like, I think second to none. It's insanely deep and insanely practical all at once. It's some of the best like written preaching. I, plus, I love that this dude, like he got ousted from the pulpit like several times, always came back. He preached in the woods yeah. because, you know, under physical threat. That is banging. Like having a, I can only imagine what it was like to have be getting preached at from John Flavel in the woods. I mean, can yeah. you imagine? Incredible, I'd like probably. to see an epic crossover like graphic novel that combines the story of John Flavel and the story of Robin Hood. <laughs> Because I feel like they're basically the same okay. story with just like slight variations. Oh, man. Why do we always come up with such great ideas that we cannot execute? I don't know. I don't know. I do, is there, there's got to be someone in our audience that can make that graphic novel. Give me oh, that graphic word. novel and I will, I will self-publish it on like Amazon self-publishing. What a great idea. Graphic novel of Puritan preachers. Yes. I don't know how that would work. It'd just be like like a pain with like sermons in it, like the same picture over and over again with sermons. It's possible that we're almost describing ref tunes, but I don't know. It's true. It's possible. Yeah. It's, it's pretty close. So what do you got this week as your epic affirmation? This is the most epic. So, um, we got a series of photos just before we started recording and we have permission to share this. So if you go back, um, I don't know, maybe like, 20 episodes, we talked about two of our listeners who became engaged to each other, not, not through right. the show, but they were, they were both our listeners. Um, and so we sent them a mug to say, congratulations on your engagement. Well, Colton Hinson, uh, who was the groom of that pair, obviously sent me a series of photos of his now wife, Zoe, who uh, got baptized and became a member of her church today, which is exciting yeah, Zoe. And, and amazing and congratulations. Um, but the funny part about it is that she is standing up in front of the church in the baptismal with the pastor rocking a reformed brotherhood t-shirt, which is like the, <laughs> my favorite thing ever. So boom, that is awesome. Uh, so congratulations. It's awesome to see people getting baptized, people joining the visible church. 
um, couldn't be happier for everything that's going on in that, that couple's lives. Two things that strike me that confirm that Zoe is knows what, what's going on. She's got it right. One, she's rocking the Reformed Brotherhood t-shirt in front of the congregation. Love that. Uh, second thing, she's an adult. Yes. Getting baptized. Yes, that's great. <laughs> I'm going to slap you just right in the face. I'm going to reach through the internet and slap you right in the face. That was the best response I could have hoped for <laughs> from you. That was brilliant. Uh, I've had enough baptism debates. It's been a couple weeks in the reform pub of like, like really aggressive baptism debates. I'm just ready to be done for a little while. Oh, do people still talk about that? Yeah. So let's all just agree to follow the historic practice of the church and baptize our babies (laughs) because the promise is for you and your children. Oh my word. There's that. Yeah. Beautiful. So are we talking about baptism or something else? We are actually a little bit. Yeah, so kind of. we're going to talk tonight about the Great Commission. So um, I'm going to start out, I'm just going to read uh, the chapter in question, or not the whole chapter, but just the section in question. Um, usually people start reading at uh, verse 18, but I'm going to go ahead and back up uh, and read to uh, at verse 16. So this is Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So this is kind of um, the classic text where the church at large, gets their marching orders in terms of proclaiming and spreading the gospel. But, you know, as I read this and as I've sort of studied it in a various kind of various um, venues over the last several years, there's a couple things that I think that, that we just get wrong about this text. We just don't understand. But before we kind of dig into that, um, what do you think about this? T- talk us through this text. What are your thoughts on the Great Commission and what this text teaches us? I'm with you on this. I think like an evangelical subculture, the ubiquity of the Great Commission is only matched by the poverty of its interpretation. So mm-hmm. that tells you where I'm at. I'm yeah. agreeing with you. We we haven't even like really discussed, I think, our, our different views on this until just now. Yeah. And, and I think like this is where I just want to really boast on the reformed understanding of this, as it's kind of been my interpretation as I've grown to try to understand what this commandment means or what this um, commission means. I mean, I think that God's purpose here is is showing that it's not just to rescue some human beings, but it's also the restoration of human rule by confirming believers, or by confirming, by conforming believers to the image of his son so that Jesus would be the firstborn among many brethren. So when I see the Great Commission, I don't primarily or let's say solely interpret it as necessarily like just referring to people or all people. Because Jesus' death, resurrection, and, and all the subsequent calling of sinners to repentance is, I think, here like presented in this kind of like strikingly cosmic term. Yeah. So we have like human redemption as seen as within a view to an administration that would be suitable to like the fullness of all time, like Ephesians, I think, 1 says. So we're summing up all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. So I think it's showing us there's this Christ-centered nature of redemption And it's seen clearly in the content of the Great Commission proclamation itself, because it is the message of the crucified and resurrected Messiah who bears the wrath of God in the place of sinners. So for me, there's all this like centrality of Christ 
in the accomplishment of redemption that establishes both the universal scope of the mission of Christ and the freeness of the gospel offer. And it's seen in the way that Jesus is called the savior of the world, literally like the entire cosmos. So like, this is where I think like the Reformation gets it so right. And that is, we're speaking about the fact that everybody, unless you're universalist, believes in some kind of limited atonement. And so what we're talking about here is when we see the world, it's, it's much grander than just us. It's almost like too narrow to say that what we're talking about here is, you know, the world in the sense of just human beings or all human beings. Right. And then beyond that, of course, like I'm interpreting this to mean we're looking at not explicitly an evangelical mandate, but a disciple-centered mandate. And this goes back to what we've talked about before, this wonderful pairing between the Old Testament where we have in Genesis the commission to go and multiply. And here is almost in some ways like a compliment to be embedded in your culture in such a way that you are making and multiplying, but you're doing that in the sense of like making new disciples of being part of that journey. Yeah, I think, um, you know, this is one of those texts that we talked about this before, those things that I call needlepoint texts, like the the things you see uh, embroidered on like a pillow on your grandma's couch, right? Or you um, you see in a lot of like graduation cards or com- like confirmation cards, if you're in a uh, tradition that does confirmation, right. where this text is seen as like a personal commission for every single believer. But, and and there's a certain sense in which that may be true, but it's not as often seen as marching orders or like the vision or purpose statement of the church as an institution or as an organism. And I think that's, that's one of those things that um, we miss is that this, you know, there's, there's differences of opinions about how this applies to every believer. But what I've, what I've really been impressed with over the last couple of years of studying the reform perspective on this text is this is a, a, commission that's given first and foremost to the disciples who serve as kind of representatives as the establishment of the new institution, which is the church, which is the body of Christ. And so when you look at this, you see a series of things that happen, like a series of commands or a series of, um, a series of participles really. And all of those things are things that are properly done by the church, not necessarily by individuals. So just exegetically here, um, and you can make too much of an argument out of like verb tenses and things like that. And I've seen this get just butchered, but the only actual verb, the only like um, imperative verb in the text is the one that gets translated as make disciples, which isn't even a great translation anyways. The the words go, baptize, and um, teach are all what's called attendant means. And so they take on the imperative sense, but they are imperatives in that they're the way that you accomplish the main verb. And so it's, it's basically saying make disciples of all nations, comma, do this by going, baptizing and teaching them. Right. So it's not a command primarily to go, right. We read this a lot of times and it's a, it's, it's sort of brought into the arena of missionaries who are going overseas, right. Go, therefore and make disciples but really it, it's it's more of a a really ordinary activity right as you go just in in your daily goings about that's where you make disciples and you primarily right. you make disciples and the primary means of doing that is by baptizing them and by teaching them to obey God's commands well those are things that properly speaking happen in the church right that's the ministry of word and sacrament right there so what what Christ is instituting in the Great Commission is not some sort of expansive missionary effort, 
There are plenty of other passages in the scriptures that teach us that we should go out into the world and and preach the gospel. But this text here is really more about the establishing of of God's church on earth and of him establishing the church as a holy nation of chosen people who obey and follow the Lord. And it's because the Lord already has authority that we are then commanded to go into the world and claim those, as you say, tying this to a limited atonement. We go into the world and we claim those who Christ has already claimed, who got the Father has already given to Christ. We go into the world and we make disciples of those people from every nation. So we, we read this, I think some evangelicals read this completely wrong. It's about this, this missionary endeavor and it, it isn't about... Um, living our lives the way we live and preaching the gospel where we are, which is really what this text for the most part is talking about. And I like that because it does in many ways, like scratch the itch of some who would say, well, the church, the Lord's day worship needs to in some way be appealing. And what Christ is really mandating here is something way far beyond that. Right. And so there is a place for the church to be doing the very thing of making disciples. And as you say, that's, I think the administration of, of what you just said, because Again, I would say like this is we sometimes confuse I think those those small group of sentences for like some kind of plea to evangelism. And I think that sometimes gets in, interpreted as you need to be evangelizing. Right. And while I think that's noble and that should be something we do if we're passionate of course about being part of the family of God, when Jesus gave that commission to the church, like you said he's speaking authoritatively and he gave a mandate to the church of all uh, through all the ages not simply to evangelize but to make disciples and so the great commission is the call of Christ for his disciples to extend his authority over the whole world right and we're to share the gospel with everyone so that more and more people of course might call him master and so the great commission calls us to flood this world with knowledgeable articulate christians who worship god and follow jesus christ passionately and so that is only going to happen by virtue of and inside of the church. There's no other place where that can really effectively occur. And so I think you're right. And I think there are some churches that do that, or maybe even denominations that do that exceptionally well, where they understand these verses as rallying around the central mission of who they are as the body of Christ, practically and theologically. But more often than not, I think what happens is this sometimes, this passage is leveraged against people as, what have you done lately? Right. To make disciples. What have you done to make sure that somebody that you you know, led to the Lord, you've also like kept up with? Like, do you have breakfast with them? Do you make sure that they're reading their Bible? Yeah. And practically speaking, what this is saying is, no, they should be brought into the, the fellowship of the church so that those can be administered properly and with constancy. Yeah. Yeah. So the other the other element of this that I wanted to discuss, because this is really the first time I kind of realized this. Um it sort of like unlocked this passage. So, so I've talked about how there are certain, there are certain times in my Christian walk where like all of a sudden something in the scripture just sort of snaps into sharp relief. Like it was blurry before. And then all of a sudden it comes into focus. So I want to read, and this is one of, sometimes I tell people this and they almost kind of like rolled their eyes at me like, well, of course this is what it is, but this was really pivotal for me. So I'm going to read all of Psalm two for a second here. So Psalm 2, starting in verse 1. Why do the nations rage, and why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed one, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree. 
The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So what what blows my mind about this passage is, um, so you read this psalm, and then you read it next to the Great Commission, and what you have is you have, the Lord has set his king on Zion's holy hill. Jesus came and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So, so the Lord has set his king on Zion's hill, right? And that king is Jesus. And then he says, you are my son, today I've begotten you, right? That passage, this passage gets picked up in, uh, by Peter in Acts as a reference to the resurrection. The Lord has, has raised Jesus from the dead, and that is his act of begetting him. There's other places in the scripture where it seems to be talking and referring to eternal generation, but it also gets applied to this temporal begetting of, of Christ as the faithful Adam. So he sets his king on the holy hill, so all, Christ, all authority has been given to Christ. Ask of me and I will make the nations of your heritage. So Christ has now ascended into heaven and is interceding for the nations, for all those who are is throughout all of the nations. Right. He's asking for the nations and the Lord is giving to them, giving them to him as his heritage. But this is what blows my mind. The means by which he intends to give the son his heritage is the faithful proclamation of the gospel by those who are followers of Jesus. Right? right on. And then you get to the end here. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Behold, I am with you to the end of the age. Kiss the son lest he be angry. Right? Teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. So Christ literally, and I think, I don't have a way to prove this other than the, the linguistic connections. I think Christ is exegeting this passage. He's basically saying this psalm is now come to fulfillment in your hearing, just like he did with Isaiah when he gets up in the synagogue. And and that just blows my mind because this isn't this isn't some nice little um platitude that Christ tacks on to the end of his ministry. This is this is the plan of the Father in all eternity past to give the Son a people who are his. Again, tying into that idea of limited atonement, right? The Lord has already selected those from all of the nations who are his and who he will save. And now the Son is executing that will through his temporal ministry and bringing all of those in by the Holy Spirit. Um, and then those come into union with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit through baptism. It, it's it's just a, an understanding of this passage that's really just changed the way I think about it. That, that's solid. Yeah, I really see some of that as like part of the continual and ongoing ministry of Christ. Like he, he is the one who's walking even among the lampstands. Mm-hmm. And so it's just wonderful to think on how he is given established authority. And of course, how the authority relates to where this passage occurs, which is post-resurrection, because we have, as you said, kind of God bringing forth all of this out of the resurrection of Christ, because that establishes his authority and power. And then he's delegating that to the church in the Great Commission task. So yeah. you have the resurrection of Jesus, essentially not even just signifying, but basically meaning that he is the righteous one. He's the true Israel. He's the one that was raised from the dead. And so he is the propitiation of Yahweh's wrath against rebellious humanity. He has been vindicated as the anointed human king of the cosmos. And that's how God is, in fact, bringing out, like you said, delivering uh, people for himself, so to speak. And so, like, 
this is why I just we come back to I think this year already we just we've focused so much on this once again this union with Christ in that it, that's what I struck as you were saying that because it's believing Christ is like essential to the Great Commission how you understand it because those who come to Jesus for salvation you know, scriptures testify must you know according to Romans ten believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead in order to be saved. And that's not simply some sort of like test of faith as though one must believe like some kind of seemingly unbelievable miracle in order to quote unquote prove that one is really trusting in Christ. But it's believing in the resurrection is part of what it means to trust Christ, that he is in fact the ruler of all the cosmos, that he is in fact bringing a people that have been selected uh, because of God's great plan into the family of Christ. It, this is also why I love the Reformed tradition because it means that as a church, when we participate in this, when we put our efforts and our resources and our organizational skills into doing our best work toward the Great Commission, we don't need to do so with fingers crossed. We don't need to yeah. hope that it's going to be effective. We don't need to try to guess whether or not some people will be moved, quote unquote, by like this message or to try to dress it up or put trappings on it to make it more palatable or to make it seem like it's it's some you know more emotional or more has more gravitas than it actually does. You just need to go out and to be faithful in those things. Yeah. And I think that probably we've talked about this before, but more than any place, I see people as practical Calvinists when it comes to the Great Commission because everybody is. Well, let me say it this way: some people are really quick to say we must have some sense of free will. And generally what they mean by that is a right to receive, a right to reject. Everybody has some kind of sense of parity where they sit on the fence and they have equal and opportunity to essentially accept salvation or reject salvation. Uh, That comes up generally just those conversations of like not feeling forced or having some kind of like robotic tendencies to just kind of fall in line with some kind of doctrine. However, when it comes to, of course, somebody that you really love or that's important to you, Everybody wants to pray for that person's salvation, which I mean, mean, this is what we're talking about here, that God, that is part of the Great Commission, that the work that Christ is doing is in fact fact the same thing that we feel prone to want to pray for, and that is that everybody would come to to know God. Um, That's the way we should walk forward, but we should also walk forward in confidence that God will use that very thing, this, this commission that he's given us, to do the very thing that he has established from eternity past. Yeah. Yeah, and you know that ties into the other element that I have been studying and sort of some typological things that I think I've been seeing. So we went through a study of Joshua in our men's Bible study last summer. We didn't really touch on this element of it, but I, I started to see these connections between the way that the Gospels and Acts present the spread of the Gospel as sort of a new conquest of Canaan, right? So right. the Israelites go out into the desert and there's this there's this biblical theological theme that runs throughout um, the early part of the Old Testament that when, when there is sin and exile, that it's exile to the east, right? So Adam and Eve, um, they sin and they're exiled east of Eden. The, the Israelites, when they sin, they're exiled east to Babylon and Assyria. Um, and so the movement from east to west is also sort of a scene is a is a movement from um, redemption or from sin or from exile to redemption. And so so if you watch if you look at the track that um, Joshua takes when he comes in to the conquest, he goes from uh, he goes south of the the Dead Sea 
and then he comes north a little bit through Moab, and then he comes east across the Jordan River into Jericho and then into the Promised Land, right? When they return from Babylon, they're coming from Babylon to the east. And and when you look at the way that Acts unfolds, now we know from, from extra-biblical history that the gospel went all directions, right? We have records of it reaching almost all the way to China. We have records of it getting all the way to Spain. But the, the progression of Paul's missionary journeys is from east to west. And so it's important to, to recognize that. And here's why, is that the, um, the, the way that God presents what's going on in the conquest is not a matter of um, a, some special blessing that allows the Israelites to defeat their enemies. It's that the Lord has already claimed the land that he's giving them. And all right. they have to go is do, do is go and take possession of it. And so like you're saying, like sometimes people, when they do evangelism, they do it kind of with this, like, I hope this works out attitude. You know, they, they, they pray and they hope that God is going to act, but if we take what we're saying seriously about the great commission, that all of these people in the nations are already the Lord's and now they just need to be claimed and Christ is sending us out to do them. It very much is just like Joshua in the conquest, right? God has already taken possession of his promised people. He's already taken possession of the land. And now all we are expected to do is to trust him and to follow his commandments and to obey him and go and get them. So Joshua goes into the land and there's all these miraculous things that happen in Joshua that, that basically the Israelites, it's not true that they never have to go to battle, but it, it actually seems like most of the time there's not a lot of battling going on. There's a couple spots where they have some strategy that they have to do and the Lord gives them like direction on how to do it. Or sometimes Joshua just employs good strategy, but it also says that I'll drive the Ammonites out in front of you. I'll send hornets and drive them out of their land. So when you get there, they'll, they'll already be ragged. Um, there's this common theme in Joshua that the people, there's this sort of like wave of terror that goes in front of the Israelites, right? And who's afraid of a bunch of, a bunch of wandering slaves in the desert with makeshift weapons, Right. Apparently everybody in the land of Canaan, and that's really unusual. <laughs> right. And so there's this, and and when um, when the Israelites are disobedient, it says the same thing about them that they're they're driven away in terror, they melt in fear. And so there's this idea that as long as the Lord is on your side, as long as the lo- the Lord is giving you the land that He's promised you, then you will have victory. And we see that, um, you know, I'm reading in my devotions um, about Saul and David, and that's exactly what happens with Saul and David. Saul has all these military campaigns, and he's he's doing okay. He's he's gaining some ground, and he loses some ground. He gains some ground, he loses some ground. David just goes in and takes the land that the Lord has given him, right? It starts with, with David and Goliath, right? He comes and says, the Lord will defeat you because you're an enemy of God's people. And he just, he kills the giant, takes his head and it's done. And that same pattern goes on. And so we need to approach the Great Commission and the evangelism that comes out of it, this ministry that God has given to the church. We need to approach it like Joshua claiming the promised land, like David driving out the remaining Philistines, like Elijah, who's assuming victory on Mount Carmel, right? All of these things that the Lord has already promised us, instead of being afraid like the 10, you know, the 12 spies or the 10 spies who go in the first time and come back and they lie to the people because they're terrified of the giants, we should just go out there and get God's people. We should just go out and preach. And we don't have to worry about results because God has already promised us that his people are out there and all we have to go, all we have to do is go and get them. Right. So basically... The only one who can really handle the name it and claim it is God. And that's exactly what exactly. he's doing. 
exactly. exactly what he's doing. And and you know what? Even if you look to the New Testament, how the apostles approach this, I think, is illustrative as well. Yep. Because they're fo- they are actually following in that example. And it strikes me that you know Jesus grounds the free offer of the gospel and the fact that all is ready. Every the table is set. So. The apostles, when you look at their teaching, and I think this would be helpful for all of us as we understand this, but especially our ministers, the apostles do not simply instruct unbelievers that if they believe in something that may or may not be true, that is like that Jesus died for their sins, then that they will be able to find that that thing will be true after all. But instead what they're doing is the apostles plead with all unbelievers to come to Christ. You know, they're basically saying, you need to abandon all other hope of salvation except in the substitutionary death and the resurrection of Jesus. Right. And on the basis of that provision, then the atonement is applied to your life. What's interesting to me is that the apostles, they're not just inviting people to come to Christ with no conditions except repentance and faith. They command all people right. to come to Christ. Yeah. I mean, so they're coming out of the gate hot, like <laughs> coming with that kind of authority that you're saying. And this is why the Great Commission ends up being a, a double-edged sword, because it's exactly because of that mindset that those who refuse to come to Christ, what they're doing is they're insisting on standing before God without a mediator. I mean, they bear their own sins, and they're going to receive a heightened condemnation as those who have trampled on the blood of Christ. So the freeness of the gospel offer means that Great Commission Christians must crucify any hesitation to proclaim the gospel to any sinner at any place at any time. And that's going yeah. back to this idea that go out with conquest in mind, not in this kind of self-assured way, but knowing that God has made that security already possible. Yeah. And the gospel of the apostles is not offered only to the elect, but it's, it's to all sinners without distinction. And that's the part where we get into you know, John 3.16, probably understanding this, as, as we said before, all the believing ones, but all kinds of people, that is the whole world, all kinds of people across socioeconomic status, across ethnicity, across geography. And that was what would have been scandalous, of course, in the eyes of the Jews at the time that Jesus is bringing this message. So it's almost like, again, we just, we just kind of misunderstand it. We're on a totally different page in, right. in most cases. Yeah. But Jesus and the Apostle Paul, they're calling on Christians to plead with persuasion and urgency for all sinners on behalf of Christ himself to be reconciled to God through the atoning mission of Jesus. But it's not this persuasion in the sense of, I'm crossing my fingers because I hope I'm really getting through to you. It's this persuasion because it's important and it's pivotal. And where he's, did I just say pivotal? It's pivotal. Yeah. And um, it's, it's a mission. It's a commission that they've been given. So they come with urgency, but not the kind of urgency again, that's like trying to win a debate or just to win somebody over. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, just to kind of loop back to that, I, I think what I think what we're developing is is this might sound scandalous, but we're developing a theology of holy Christian war, right? Sure. And, and yeah, I guess so. When you read the end of Joshua, or when you read the beginning of Joshua, excuse me, um, this is what started me on this track of these parallels between Joshua and the conquest and the Christian life in terms of the Great Commission is in uh, chapter one. Verse uh, verse eight, the book of this law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do all that is according, all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord. Your God is with you wherever you go. So just as the great commission was given to the disciples by Christ on the, the, um, at the end of Matthew, 
basically Joshua is given his own version of this great commission. And this is where I think, this is why I'm saying this is a theology of Christian holy war is because in the old Testament, holy war was a conquest of God's land by God's people for the purpose of, of God delivering his promises to them. And so in the new Testament, rather than this being a temporal physical conquest that we engage in, it's a spiritual conquest where our enemies, instead of being the people who live in the land, our enemies are sin, death, and the devil. And right. so we go out and we take, I mean, the military language is all over the New Testament, right? Paul Paul uses military analogies of conquest. He says, we're more than conquerors in Christ. We take we take things captive. We parade them, you know, we parade the powers and principalities. He's using armor language. He's using weapon language, training. All this stuff is military language. And I think sometimes as Christians, we shy away from this this militaristic language but there's a reason that historically the church has been called the visible church has been called the church militant and then the invisible church has been called the church victorious because while we're on earth it's not just a matter of trying really hard it's a matter we have marching orders right we have a commission i know that the word commission is not actually in the passage about the great commission but we call it a commission because this theology of christian holy war and evangelism being that conquering by the sword of the spirit not by the sword of man not by the temporal sword is really what evangelism is about it's about going out and setting captives free and bringing them into the kingdom and having them then join the army and go out and you know free more captives and right we on. just miss the urgency of that you know i remember um you know after all the the fighting started after 911 I remember you started for a, for a couple months, there wasn't anything positive going on. You, all you heard was kind of this darkness and gloom. And then maybe it was even a couple years, you started to see images of people in um, occupied areas being liberated. And yeah, we can get into all the political questions about whether it was the right thing or not. But but the people who were liberated were genuinely freed and they were genuinely happy, right? Or you see images when ISIS had come through and conquered all this territory and then all of a sudden this coalition started pushing them back. You're seeing people coming out of caves who are happy to see the light of day because they've been freed from this oppressive tyranny. How much greater is the freedom when people come out of their spiritual caves because they've been shown the light of grace and the light of the gospel, and now they're free to worship the sun. Um, you know, we think about freedom in terms of freedom of the will, freedom to do what we choose, right? The Arminian perspective is that we have the freedom to reject God just as much as we have the freedom to choose God. But in reality, freedom to reject God is not freedom at all. That's just a right. different kind of bondage. So we talk about setting captives free. We talk about claiming territory for the kingdom. Um, we need to start thinking and acting more in terms of a military conquest than in sort of this, I don't know, sort of like loosey goosey, like just, just share the, share the good news, just share the, the joy that you have. Well, no, like go out there and get, get your spiritual sword, get after it, get after it because there are people who are perishing and a lot of times we're not doing anything about it. Right. Right. You're, you're basically putting forward like a, the great commission as come and get some exactly yeah it's like <laughs> like the spartans mal and yeah. labe right yeah i'm glad you went there because the one element in particular that i think is, certainly speaks to that is the dimension of baptism so we have union with jesus in crucifixion and resurrection is is seen in baptism and, and that's the mandate that jesus is giving in the great commission so you know it, we need to remember like baptism is not like 
a bar mitzvah like invitation into Christianity. Like it, right. it's not accidental that baptism is done with water, which is, of course is like the element of the wrath of God and the flood judgment of the world right. and the element of the seas, which in the Old Testament represents chaos and hostility to God. So we have Jesus speaks of his death under the curse of God as a baptism he must undergo. Then we have the Apostle Paul speaks of the Old Testament Israelites as baptized when they pass safely through the waters of judgment. And then the New Covenant, baptism signifies the, the burial of the believer with Jesus in the chaotic waters of death and the resurrection of the believer with Jesus from the grip of the, gate, the grave. So I think, maybe this is going too far, but I think like baptism itself is a call to battle. It's basically saying when believers from every nation go down into the waters, they appeal to God for rescue from the condemnation of, like you said, the angels, authorities, and powers of this world, which have been swept away by the resurrection triumph of the warrior Messiah. So even there, it's saying this is a conquest over death itself as empowered by the resurrected son, who again is our brother in the first fruits of those who are to come. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just think that we, um, you know, when we look at the Christian life, this military language, I mean, this is all over church history too. Like this militaristic language, the word sacrament is a, is a, was an oath that a soldier took to be faithful to obey his commanding officer. Like it was a pledge of loyalty in the military. And so when, when we, we've taken this militaristic language that the church has developed throughout her history, which it developed because of the language of the new Testament, which was adopted from the old Testament. And we, we have missed this entirely, right? The Levites for crying out loud, their first experience as being set apart as Levites was when they were commanded by Moses to slaughter all the idolatrous Israelites at the Mount, at the foot of Mount Sinai, right? With the golden calf. So like even the priests in Israel were, were segregated out as a military division. And throughout the whole history of Israel and into the church, this militaristic language has gone that. And I think we've lost sight of that reality in our sort of 20th, 21st century um, sensibilities about colonialism and conquest. And what about the Crusades? You know, the, the, the cross, uh, you spread the, the gospel with the cross, not the sword. Well, yes, not the temporal sword, but the, the church has always wielded the sword of the spirit in matters of spiritual discernment and judgment, whether that's, whether that is executing church discipline or whether that is conquering territory in the name of Jesus Christ spiritually in terms of the proclamation of the gospel in dark places. So I just think we have to really, instead of thinking about the great commission as like this, this um, vision statement or this purpose statement for the church, we really need to think about it as our battle cry, as our marching orders, as what our commanding officer who has already won the battle for us, what our commanding officer has given us in order to execute his will in the battle. And if we do that, we're assured victory because all authority on heaven and earth has already been given to Jesus Christ. Right. And if we lose sight of that, as I think a lot of a lot of times, and I, I'm not trying to be unfair to our Lutheran and our Arminian brothers and sisters, but when we put the salvation of men in the hands of men, either positively in terms of Arminianism or negatively in terms of Lutheranism, we have lost sight of the fact that all authority, 
even the authority over salvation has been given to Jesus Christ. Um, and we just have to reclaim that if we're really going to understand what it is that, that God de- expects of us and demands of us in terms of reaching the lost. And that's why I think like the Reformed tradition gets it right, because I don't think you can have the Great Commission without acknowledging the type of authority that Jesus has to give the commission, right? Right, exactly. So I think it does start to collapse on itself, and that's one of those things that we can just unknowingly do. I don't think there are necessarily good Christians out there who read this, either in a card or on the stitched pillow at their grandmother's house, and say, well, that just seems ridiculous. Like, you know, basically what we're saying here is we just need to talk more about Jesus. You know, they're not realizing, I think, that they are disconnecting the authority of Christ by way of salvation from the authority of Christ to, in fact, save his church. And I think probably it is better expressed as some type of like, here is your military mission, as opposed to like, here is your business mission statement for your church. And even the way in which we think about this, like there's almost like a I don't know, some kind of like, I'm trying to think of like a elite military unit. Who are the guys? Like the Navy SEAL style. Like yeah. there's almost like a, a kind of covert element to this because in, in a local sense, in a local setting, you know, scripture calls us to this kind of missional discipleship through this commission. And a following after Jesus requires this really redemptive engagement, not just with souls, but with creation and culture. That's going back to this idea of yeah. the whole world. And so the command to make disciples, it's interesting that it's of all nations, not from all nations. Right. So the Great Commission is not about like soul extraction to remove the disciple from his culture, but it's really to make disciples within their cultural context. And even as we've been talking, and I've been thinking about this, it seems to me to like a much lesser extent, we're actually following in the pattern of like the scandal of particularity. Yeah. You know, it's as if God is saying like military conquests, military strongholds have been placed all over this globe by God's design. And he's saying, yeah, now go out and make disciples from where you're at. Yeah. And so, you know, there's a scandal of like, you're, you're being placed in a particular place. Your church is in a location because that's God where God has perfectly placed it to do that very thing. And you should do that very thing. And I'm struck by that the area in which we live is one of those places where it's quick to say, how are we going out to all the nations? But I would say if you live in almost any place in the U.S. right now, what we're finding is the nations are coming to us, like they're at our doorstep. And so all the more, God and his wonderful, brilliant plan is bringing people and mixing people all together. And this is, again, why it's so important that we honor this, not just in the grand sense, but that in our local church, we are thinking, what are we doing day to day, Lord's Day to Lord's Day, week to week, to figure out how we are actually moving forward with that commission? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually, what you just said sparked a whole new thought in me. So we may have to do another Great Commission episode in, in a couple months. Because, you know, the the language, I mentioned it very briefly in the beginning here. It's not just the mistranslation of the participles as, um, particularly that first participle, as a command. That's a problem in this text. But the language of make disciples of all nations it actually, I, I actually think it's probably better translated as disciple all peoples, right? right. It's not, it's not about, exactly. um, like you said, it's not about going into every, every discrete nation and making disciples from within those nations. It's about actively discipling all peoples and all in the sense of without distinction, not without exception, right? That's the kind of classic reformed understanding of when we're talking about all peoples, all nations, all whatever, that is without distinction, not without exception, is that Christ is is saying, I have people in every single nation. I've got people out there 
And I want you to go make disciples of all of those people. Not just the people in this part of the world, not just the people in that part of the world, not just the people in your family, but all peoples. So I, I think that that's another part of this passage that just gets gets um, botched, just really, really screwed up, is that we see this as like, all right, well, I've got this list of 20th century uh, nation states, and that's what Jesus had in mind, is I have to send missionaries to every single one of these nation states. It's totally anachronistic. And we just miss the point of the passage if we think that that's what it's talking about. And and lest the listener think that that's a caricature, there are missions organizations that have like maps on their walls that have like right. like push pins of like, all right, well, as long as we've got as long as we got missionaries in every single one of these nation states, then we're fulfilling the Great Commission. Right. Um, well, let's let's not forget about the fact that there are people in one corner of that nation state that don't have the gospel, right? There's this whole group of Muslims in like a corner of China that are being herded into internment camps that not only are they not able to practice their religion, but they're not even like, we can't get missionaries to them because they're isolated by the Chinese government. So there's a lot more to the great commission than just this idea of like, we have to send missionaries overseas, which is, I think how a lot of modern evangelicals sort of think about it. And of course, there's nothing wrong with having that kind of passion that God lays on the people's hearts to go and commit themselves to those people groups. And it's wonderful that we should have a passion, of course, for all, that they would be, they would receive the gospel, they, they'd have it preached to them, that, that people would go, because of course, faith comes through hearing. At the same time, I've also, I think, to, to the detriment, seen many churches or organizations link, if only implicitly, this idea that, well, God will not allow his son to return until somehow right. we've completed the Great Commission, like you said, by placing ourselves everywhere. As if like God is waiting, like he's just ticking off like the people groups. Yeah. And he's like, okay, there's like four more left. If you guys can just find these people and send somebody over there, they don't, you know, they just have to send somebody over there and give them the message. Then, you know, boom, I'm right back here. Yep. Um, I mean, I think most people would, would bristle what I just said and, and I, they would say, well, you're being hyperbolic. And I am for a point. At the same time, again, I think that there's sometimes that's kind of like implied or that's like the subtext. Like we need to get after it. And I've heard the argument, well, we need to get after it, not just because we're concerned about these people, because like, how is God going to come back? How is, right. how is Jesus going to return? How is the son going to come back if we haven't gone and fulfilled the Great Commission? Yeah. And I think that's just turning it on its, its feet. It's getting it backwards. Yep. Yeah. Jesus already completed the Great Commission. And now right. our Amen. activity is just a matter of living that out and accomplishing it, right? It's it's Jesus already landed on the beach in Normandy. And now it's just right. a matter of finishing the war, which he's commanded his his troops to do. Um, and he's guaranteed them success because he's already landed on the beach in Normandy. Yeah, so it, it's exactly. Yeah. So I think I think um, you know, we could go on and on and on about this. And this is something that I, you know, we mentioned in our episode uh, at the beginning of last month. Evangelism is something that I have been convicted of that I have not been doing properly. I have not been as um, confident or as bold, even just in the, the prayer element of evangelism as I ought to have been. So I have a feeling this is a focus that we're going to come back to again this year. Yeah, I've been feeling that same way too. Is I think it's just being... Letting and, and this is why I think that it's important to bifurcate in some respects evangelism from the Great Commission. Like we right. shouldn't conflate the two. They're certainly re related in a sense, but of course the Great Commission is far more than evangelism. Right. 
And I, I wouldn't necessarily say, you, you might have a different opinion on this, but I wouldn't necessarily say, especially when it comes to like Lord's Day worship, that that time is in any way about evangelism. Right. Um, per- perhaps just with the exception that, of course, on any given Lord's Day, the gospel should be being preached. And of course, the gospel, the full counsel of God's word, uh, radically changes people's lives as God calls them through that message by the power of the Holy Spirit. Right. So that notwithstanding, uh, you know, I disagree with kind of the emphasis that we need to be, again, quote unquote, like seeker sensitive in how we design things. That seems more evangelistic as opposed to a Lord's Day service where we're, you know, we're focusing on making disciples. Right. Uh, I think those are two like very different things, but I'm with you. Like, I think part of the first step, maybe perhaps the first domino in our own lives to fall is the one where we are concerned with being evangelistic in our relationships. And that's yeah. not to say I'm not promoting this idea where you need to like really get to know somebody before you can you know, tell them about the gospel. It's just being authentic and transparent with who you are. If you love Jesus, then, you know, like, I, I don't know if you've ever had this experience. Like, there's some people I know that I think this person is either completely out of their mind or they are actually so close to the Lord that this is what transparent, authentic Christianity looks like, like union with Christ looks like this, because they just cannot help themselves in talking about it. Like every conversation almost goes back to that. And and these are the kind of people that I think not only have internalized what it means to be saved by grace, you know, through faith, but they're the kind of people that they just understand that anything that you're passionate about in life is going to be the thing that you talk about. Like we all evangelize something and going back to like what this day is, if you love football, if you love your football team, no doubt that's going to come out in conversation almost naturally and as like a happy byproduct yeah. of what your interest is and who you are. I want to be that kind of person when it comes to to Jesus. And not in such a way where people sense that like they're just getting browbeaten where they don't want to talk to me or they don't want to bring up certain topics because they think I'm going to just roll over them on it. But just that they have a sense that like, I guess, union with Christ. You know, like I talk about my wife because I love her and because she is an integral part of who I am now as a person. And I'd like to think, I hope nobody's like, oh man, I wish Jesse would stop talking about his wife so much. (laughs) But you know, like as it comes up, like I never forget in the back of my mind that I'm married. Um, It's part of who I am. So that that's something where I want to become so united with Christ that it's just kind of a natural expression of who I am at any given moment. Yeah. One thing that I think we, we lose sight of, and then we can wrap this up is um, the vast majority of Christian experience in the New Testament happens completely unspoken, right? right. So we, we read about in the, the book of Acts, right, which the full title is the Acts of the Apostles. And we have this tendency to think that the work of the apostles and the experience of the apostles, as we see in that book, is normative for the early church. But the gospel spread in the early church predominantly because people lived out their faith wherever they were. Right. There's this little there's this little passage, I think it's in Acts 7, somewhere in Acts 7 or 8, right after Stephen is is martyred and James is mur- martyred. Um where it says that that the disciples who lived in Jerusalem, they scattered into Judea and Samaria. And and from that point out the gospel goes out and we think about the miraculous, the amazing things that happen, but the vast majority of Christians in the early church never experienced a, a miracle. 
right? It, that's just the reality. Right. Like most of them probably never experienced a miracle. We don't have a lot of good reason to think that the majority of them ever spoke in tongues or, or saw someone rise, raised from the dead. Like those are by definition, miraculous, un- you know, extraordinary events. And so we, we should not feel like, um, our evangelism has to take the place of some extraordinary ministry, right? You don't have to stand up on your table in the lunchroom at work and, and start reading from the book of John. Like that, that's not how God has commanded us to do evangelism. He's commanded us to live quiet lives, to work with our hands, to mind our own business for the most part, and to tell people about Jesus when we have an opportunity and to, to, to do good and to commit ourselves and devote ourselves to doing good, because that is one of the primary ways that God sort of whets the appetites of people. Now, this is, it's not the same as like the whole like, well, someone's just going to ask you what's so different about you. That That's not what I'm saying. Right. But God has, I mean, Jesus himself said it, right? Let your light shine before men so that they may glorify your Father who's in heaven, right? Evangelism takes place through the obedience of his people and not just obedience to preach the gospel, but obedience to obey the law, right? That's, that's something that our world desperately needs to see is that there's people who have a standard and that they're willing to be obedient to it and acknowledge when they fail. And that's one of the ways that God spreads his gospel is by, by showing people that they don't meet up to any standard, not even their own. And that there has to be a solution for that because if there's not, we're all, we're all doomed. Um, and Jesus is that solution. So, We'll come back to this. This has been a, I think has been a good episode. Hopefully it's edifying for people. Um, I did want to mention though, Jesse, I don't know if you knew this because I did it kind of secretly, but we added a new show to the network. We did. That's we right. Did. We added the regular reform guys. So little known fact, when we first started the uh, Society of Reform Podcasters, right? It was Reform Brotherhood, it was Fast God Stuff and the Reformed Outlook. And I had secretly hoped that I was going to contact the regular reform guys to be the fourth founding member of the Society of Reform Podcasters. But literally, as we formed the the society, their show went on hiatus because one of their hosts went to seminary. So as soon as they came back, I started messaging them. I was like, oh my gosh, we need to get you in. So they finally joined. They're in the mega feed. Uh, we're super excited to have them. Um, there's just some really, really great. Uh, episodes recently, really good interviews that they've been doing. Yeah, they are great guys. So that's something I would encourage everybody to check out. Yeah, check it out. So Jesse, do you have any closing thoughts before we we land this plane? Do you want to hear something semi-lame? Sure, always. So because, because of what you said about how the apostles lived out that call, and really isn't that challenging enough. Like you, you don't need to worry about what you might preach if you were standing on the table in your own lunchroom, because I think again, just living out a life that honors God is challenging enough. That's, that's enough of a commission right there. Um, But because of that whole acts thing, I sometimes refer to uh, acts as the smacks of the apostles only because (laughs) I feel, I feel like they just lay the smack down. Like everywhere they go again, they just go with authority. And I'm like, man, they're just smacking it around. Yeah. My favorite is how Philip is wandering around in the desert and the chariot goes by and he like (laughs) runs up to the chariot. Like he sprints yeah, so, up to the chariot and I don't know if like the chariot was going full speed or if it was like Peter and the Yes. But yes, either way, thank I'm, you. I'm, it's like, I'm just going to start running up to cars in traffic and be like, do you understand what you're reading? And they're like, what are you talking <laughs> about? I'm not reading anything. <laughs> do you understand? They're like, you run up there and somehow God has ordained that they just happened to download an episode of Reform Brotherhood. And you're like, do you understand what you're listening to right now? <laughs> Cause it's me. That's my voice. <laughs> you know, what's funny is 
I am so glad. Can I just say thank you that you brought that up? Because I thought for the longest time I was the only one that was thinking about that detail in the passage. I was thinking either like, man, Philip has got like a great mile time, like the dude can <laughs> can run. Because one of the things that my wife and I do, we live, as you know, like uh, right by us is like several train crossings. Yeah. And whenever the train goes through, my wife, I think, dislikes that I do this. But I judge the speed of the train by whether or not I think I could run and jump on it. And she always informs me that I could never run and jump on a train, no matter how slow I think it's going. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I could do it. And I always think of Philip in that moment. I'm like, listen, Philip did it. I mean, I don't yeah, know how fast he teleported figured. to the other side of the country too. So <laughs> True. I don't know if True. I don't know if the miraculous events of the disciples is your best uh, your best marker for that. So yes, the comparison breaks down just a little bit, but <laughs> I I think that I would love to understand like how fast that chariot was going because it had to be moving. I, I would say like a decent clip. Yeah. I, I'm thinking like he. Yeah, he really had to, to catch up to it. but I feel like guessing... we just started another episode. We should just probably just keep going. <laughs> I don't think that I've got it in me to do another episode right now, so we'll have to take well, it home. Let's, let's, for next time, let's save the question, how ripped were uh, Phillip's quads and calves for yeah. a whole different episode? Or Elijah, same thing. Yeah, that's yeah. that's true. All right, well, I guess until they next time when we tackle gift, that. The spiritual gift of running. <laughs> All right, take us home, Uh, Jesse. Yeah, it's just gotten out of hand. All right, well, (laughs) until we discuss how fast those dudes' mile times were, and until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Uh